Tonight's talk is on compassion. One of the existential questions we have as humans is, how do we deal with the immense amount of suffering that there is in life in this world? Our own personal suffering, the suffering of our family, friends, community, suffering of this planet. How do we hold this? A quote by Thich Nhat Hanh expresses this question uh, in his own way, this question that all of us are asking at some point. When I was a novice, I could not understand why, if the world is filled with suffering, the Buddha has such a beautiful smile. Why isn't he disturbed by all the suffering? Later, I discovered that the Buddha has enough strength, understanding, and calmness. That is why suffering does not overwhelm him. He is able to smile to suffering because he knows how to take care of it and to help transform it. We need to be aware of suffering, but retain our clarity, calmness, and strength so that we can help transform the situation. The ocean of tears cannot drown us if compassion is there. That is why the Buddha's smile is possible. This quote expresses the ability to face suffering with peace and the power of compassion to support us and protect us in the face of suffering. And I love this quote for the sense of Largest, largeness and space that can hold so much. So what is compassion? It's that quality of heart that is able to stay open and caring amidst the difficulties and suffering that exist in life. It's the tender, caring quality of heart in the face of suffering. The Pali translation has something to do with the quivering of the heart in response to suffering. So it's the friendliness of metta turned towards pain. Compassion is a sweet and poignant feeling. It's pleasant and sweet because of the connection, the connection that we feel with others, that heart response, the aliveness of a heart that's able to hold even this, even suffering. And it's poignant because it does include the fullness of vulnerability of the human condition which includes suffering. It's the natural response that we all have when we see pain. When you see young children, three years old, around three years old, if somebody gets a boo-boo, if somebody gets a hurt, they naturally want to move towards that person. You can see that there's just this natural caring 
we all have that within ourselves. And this practice, both the insight practice and metta and compassion practice, help us reclaim this natural quality of heart. So as I said, in formal compassion practice, we take the open-heartedness of metta and we turn it towards suffering. And then we wish for ourselves, for other beings, to be free from suffering. So in formal compassion practice, there's one traditional phrase, and that phrase is, may I be free from suffering, or may you be free from suffering. So we orient towards the pain and suffering in somebody's life and wish for them to be free from suffering. However, it's a little tricky. I find that this phrase, this traditional phrase, it doesn't work for all of us because if we take this phrase, may you be free from suffering, and we include aversion to the suffering in the compassion, then it's not pure compassion because pure compassion can actually accept and hold the suffering without aversion. So I have a phrase that I prefer and that some of us use, and that's, I care. I care about my suffering, or I care about this suffering. I care about your suffering. I care. And I like this phrase better personally because it really evokes that quality of care without aversion. So I have a little surprise for you tonight. We are actually going to take about 10 minutes to practice compassion practice. Now I know some of you came to the talk looking for a break. <laughs> this, this does happen. <laughs> um, so you can feel free to use the 10 minutes however you wish. Um, but we wanted to give you a taste of the compassion practice and tomorrow night a little taste of the mudita practice. Um, and 10 minutes is obviously a very short taste, but just so that you can have that experience also. So as I said, it will be short, and um, I'll guide you through it. So just to repeat, what we will do is we'll start with somebody who's suffering. So somebody that you know that's perhaps having a hard time right now. And maybe you don't have to start with the person who's like suffering the most. Um, somebody who's mildly suffering. <laughs> and um, we'll hold an image again or a sense of them. We'll contemplate the pain and suffering in their life. And then we'll, um, again, we don't have to create the metta, but we'll tune in to the caring quality of the heart and either wordlessly offer compassion or use um, the phrase. And so we'll do, we'll work with somebody who's suffering and then we'll work with ourselves for a few minutes and then our loved ones. So starting by just connecting with your body sitting here.
connecting with the heart. That metta heart that we have been cultivating, tuning into this week. Allowing kindness to be called forth. And then bringing to mind somebody that we know right now who's struggling in some way. Bringing a sense of their present or presence or some image. Allowing their suffering to become real to you. And then tuning into the quality of heart that cares about this. It helps support this caring quality of heart using the compassion phrase. May you be free from suffering. Seeing if you can relax into the connection with this person. I care about your suffering. I care. Again, this is an exploration of heart. Sometimes compassion is present. Sometimes other emotions or feelings will arise. Seeing if we can just orient back towards the care. The gentle wish for freedom from suffering.
Now, if you wish, shifting to yourself. Taking a moment to call forth the challenges of your life, perhaps physical pain or emotional suffering. Calling forth the quality of your heart to care, to connect. May I be free from suffering. I care about this suffering. You wish you can allow this care to bathe your entire body, bathing all the cells. With the sweetness of compassion. last couple of minutes, if you wish, you can continue to receive compassion from yourself, or if there's anybody else in your life that you would like to take a couple minutes to connect with and to care about.
all beings everywhere be free from suffering. Sometimes when we do compassion meditation, we will feel this sweetness of heart, this poignant tenderness of heart. I often experience it as a, as a fullness of heart. One expression that I like, one expression of compassion is from the Japanese poet, hermit poet, Ryokan. He says, Oh, that my priest's robes were wide enough to gather up all the suffering people in this floating world. There's no aversion there, just care, even a certain lightness. But oh, that my priest's robes were wide enough to gather up all the suffering people in this floating world. By Developing compassion, we're cultivating this wide and open heart that can hold the sorrow in life. A heart that can stay open and connected because it doesn't have any need to reject any part of life. And sometimes it can be very strong and bring tears to our eyes. And other times it's quiet and calm like the ocean large and spacious. Now sometimes when we do compassion practice, we experience what compassion is not. The same as with metta, it's an exploration of the heart. And in this case, it's an exploration of the heart in relationship to suffering. The far enemy of, or the far neighbor of compassion is cruelty. So we don't have any trouble distinguishing cruelty from compassion. It's quite obvious to, to us that that's not compassion. That's the opposite of compassion. But sometimes we can get confused by the near neighbors of compassion, just like the near neighbors of metta, the attached love, can confuse us as at times, can be confused for metta, the near neighbors of compassion can be confused, confused for compassion. So one of these uh, near neighbors is grief and despair. So sometimes when we're faced with suffering, a lot of grief and despair will come up. And it's, it's related to compassion. It's somewhat close, but yet there's aversion with grief and despair. So it's not quite balanced enough. There's not enough equanimity when this happens. Sharon tells a story in, in one of her books about how she was teaching in Russia and she asked this translator how he was describing compassion because she felt like he wasn't quite translating it right. 
So she wanted to, she asked him how he was translating it. And he said, Oh, I describe a state of being terribly overcome with someone's sorrow, like having a stake through your heart and having the burden of someone's pain burdening you too. <laughs> we laugh, but sometimes we actually feel like that's, that is uh, compassion, you know? Like if a friend's really upset, sometimes we might feel like, like if we should be upset too or we're not really being compassionate. But, but it's rather obvious that from that description that that's not quite enough equanimity for what we're talking about with true compassion. The first time that I did the compassion practice, um, I did it after the metta practice, and so I started with a friend of mine at that time who was suffering from a lot of depression, a very close friend I cared about deep, deeply, and so she was the first person I chose who was suffering, and um, I found that a lot of grief and, and sadness came up. Um, and actually, at a certain point, I realized that I couldn't start with her because I couldn't, I couldn't figure out what the flavor of compassion was because the grief was so strong. So I switched to this woman at work whose husband was dying of cancer. And that was like the kind of the right level for me to start with of suffering so that I could start to understand that kind of tender, caring quality of heart without the um, overwhelm of grief. Another um, near neighbor of compassion is pity. So when we pity somebody, that's not actually compassion. Pity is actually um, a drawing back from, from connecting with somebody else's suffering. So it's actually a disconnect. There's a disconnect there. And deep compassion is connected. It understands our shared humanity. Pema Chodron says, Compassion is not a relationship between the healer and the wounded. It's a relationship between equals. Only when we know our own darkness well can we be present with the darkness of others? Compassion becomes real when we recognize our shared humanity. So compassion comes from that gut feeling that we're the same, that we share this human experience of suffering. So as I said, we develop compassion by exploring how we relate to pain and suffering. What do we do when they come up in our own experience? Do we reject them, try to make them go away? Or do we learn to be with them and hold them gently, care about them? And as we learn to hold our own suffering gently, we develop compassion the gentle ability to care about suffering. We each have our own personal demons, our own personal struggles. The Sufi mystic Rumi says, everyone chooses a suffering that will change him or her to a well-baked loaf. So practice changes us from raw dough to a well-baked loaf. And a main ingredient in this baked loaf is compassion. 
So for you, is it terror or rage or loneliness or longing or confusion? This suffering is our doorway to compassion. It's our great teacher, a precious gift. A little over a year and a half ago, I woke up one morning, one day, and started having some strange neurological problems, starting in my arm, moving to my leg, and I didn't know what it was. Um, I was a little uh, concerned. <laughs> so I wound up going to the doctor. I was actually going to be going to teaching in Burma the next month. And I thought, hmm, <laughs> this is such a good idea. So I went to the doctor. And after they um, figured out that it wasn't anything like a brain tumor or an aneurysm or something like that, and said I could go, um, I was still left with not knowing what problem I had. My doctor, my, my, what do we call them, PCPs these days, uh, primary care physician, I could tell that she was worried that I might have something serious. She was trying not to, um, <laughs> not to overdo it, but I could tell, you know, the word multiple sclerosis came up and um, some really serious, that's a serious uh, disease. And I was also sent to a neurologist. And he thought that maybe I had an um, autoimmune reaction to a flu shot that I'd had four days before this started, because I was going to Burma. <laughs> um, and what he told me, he said, is, well, if it is an autoimmune reaction to the shot, it takes about 18 to 24 months for it to resolve. So basically, I was sitting there realizing that if um, this problem didn't go away, and it didn't seem to be going away, the months went on, it wasn't going away, that I, I didn't know what was wrong with me, and I wasn't going to know for a long time. Uh, th that would be the best scenario, right, that it was an autoimmune reaction. And the worst scenario would be multiple sclerosis. So um, I went through a period of months where I really struggled with a lot of fear. It was, uh, it was quite difficult. You know, I, I would... I would have this terror that I was perhaps had this serious illness and, and it was just going to get worse and worse. So I had, you know, I had this big challenge. How am I going to hold this? How am I going to hold this fear and uncertainty that could last for quite a while? And partly I dealt with it with the insight practice, realized that, you know, my thoughts about the future were just thoughts, you know, that... Uh, the present moment is what I had. But sometimes that didn't quite cut it. And what I really learned to call upon was compassion. So I would call upon compassion to really care for myself in this situation and the vulnerability and uncertainty of not knowing, just not knowing. And it really softened the pain. In fact, a lot of times it actually became quite sweet because then through that compassion I would con connect with this human condition of all of us being so vulnerable, all of us not knowing what's going to happen next. 
you know, all of us having these bodies that we don't know what's going to happen with them. Get to this place of compassion and just like, wow, look at this world we live in. It's such a wild ride. Now it's been about 19 months, and actually in the last month, things have started to resolve quite a bit. In fact, it's almost gone. So it appears that it was an autoimmune reaction to the flu shot because I'm right on schedule for what the neurologist told me. But it was a great teaching. It was a great teaching. So we have these challenges in our life that arise different for all of us. It's like the deeper the challenge, they say the deeper the challenge, um, the deeper the, the truth that we learn. And it's like the deeper the challenge, the greater potential we have to develop compassion, to learn to care. Compassion makes us strong. It gives us energy and confidence and tolerance in this world. It increases our ability to be open in this world of change. This world that includes both joy and sorrow. This world of vulnerability. And then we can have moments where compassion will just pierce our heart, break it open. There's a story I have from a book um, by Sean Murphy called uh, 108 Zen Stories. And this is a story um, by somebody who was in prison. And compassion isn't explicitly stated in the story, but you can feel it throughout the story, especially the end of the story, about how opening to pain helped this person really come home to himself. It says, in prison, there's a tremendous emphasis on keeping things suppressed. To be vulnerable to one's feelings can mean opening yourself to a tremendous amount of misery and anguish. There was an inmate practitioner who came to me one day and told me, I've been in prisons a lot rougher than this one. I was in a prison where somebody got stabbed nearly every day. He said, you get so used to it, you just notice it and go back to your conversation. You don't feel it. You just sort of pass it over. But then he told me, you know, I was in the yard the other day and someone got stabbed. And for the first time, it went right through me. In that moment, I felt all the pain I carry that this whole place carries. And he said it in the most beautiful way, with innocence, like a child discovering something for the first time. I looked at him and smiled and said, Welcome back. For me, this was an incredible demonstration of how practice works. If you really engage it over time, you just naturally come back to your own humanity. It was one of those moments that makes everything worthwhile.
So our natural wish to connect and care can be obscured by our conditioned reactions to pain and suffering, aversion, wanting things to be different, not being able to accept pain. This doesn't make these reactions bad. They're the juice of our practice, our learning ground, the grief, the despair, the pity, the aversion. So we get the opportunity over and over again to work with them, either in gross form or subtle form, and come to a place where we can more often feel compassion and care when difficulties arise, when struggle arises. True compassion, like true metta, includes wisdom and equanimity. So fully developed compassion is the ability to hold suffering with equanimity, with understanding, with realizing that suffering is part of the human condition. We need the wisdom and understanding of equanimity so that we don't get lost in our despair around suffering. It softens our reactions and strengthens our heart. Also, like with metta, compassion for ourselves can be challenging. And I don't just mean compassion for our anger or our physical pain, but compassion for all of our imperfections. Often when we practice, we've heard this several times in the hall, we've heard this in interviews, often when we sit to practice, we become quite aware of our quote-unquote imperfections, the places where we're not as kind as we wish we were, the times that we may have hurt someone. When I first practiced here in that in the three-month course, early in my practice, I was shocked at what I saw about myself. I had gone into the retreat actually thinking I was pretty together. <laughs> and um, it was like, wow, look how petty I can be. <laughs> Judgmental, selfish. <laughs> Lots of intense emotions. It was a great blessing. What it meant is I didn't have to be perfect anymore. Perfection is such a burden. There's this uh, meditation teacher named Ruth Dennison from Germany, and she's uh, known to have said, Meditation, darlings, is always bad news. (laughs) And I think she's pointing towards this. You know, most of us are are pretty able to see our more positive qualities. But, you know, we don't always like to um, see (laughs) our more challenging qualities. But when we sit down and we get quiet, it's kind of hard to avoid it. But it's really a relief because um, it gives us a chance to come home to ourselves. It gives us a chance to relax. We don't have to run from our challenges or from our difficulties. 
And we don't have to separate ourselves from others by either being better or worse than them. We just get to be human, connected, whole. So for an integrated practice, we really do need to see all of ourselves. If we want our practice to be real and embodied and integrated, we need to go through this process. Now I'm used to it. (laughs) You know, at first it was like, whoa, I didn't know this was going to happen. Now I'm used to it. (laughs) Because even the other day I was sitting here doing a metta sitting and doing the metta and some realization came up. I actually can't remember what it is right now, but it was like, wow, that too, okay. Suzuki Roshi says, you're all perfect just as you are and you have some work to do. (laughs) And for me, that's just how I hold it, you know? Kind of a little paradoxical, but it's just the right attitude. Perfect, just as I am, and yes, I do have some work to do. The poet W.H. Auden said, love your crooked neighbor with all your crooked heart. (laughs) we're all just on this planet trying to figure out how to get along together (laughs) with our crooked hearts. So this understanding of our crookedness, our imperfection, actually helps us to connect more deeply with others. When we look deeply, we see that us humans were pretty much uh, put together the same. We all have the seeds of love and compassion within us, and we also have the seeds of hate and anger. This understanding opens us to the possibility of compassion when others act unskillfully, when we act unskillfully. Because having seen this in ourselves, we have less need to reject it in others. We understand. Probably one of my all-time favorite poems is um, a poem by Thich Nhat Hanh called Please Call Me By My True Names. Do not say that I'll depart tomorrow because even today I still arrive. Look deeply. I arrive in every second to be a bud on a spring branch, to be a tiny bird whose wings are still fragile learning to sing in my new nest, to be a caterpillar in the heart of a flower, to be a jewel hiding itself in a stone. I still arrive in order to laugh and to cry, in order to fear and to hope. The rhythm of my heart is the birth and death of all that are alive. I am the mayfly, metamorphosing on the surface of the river 
and I am the bird which, when spring comes, arrives in time to eat the mayfly. I am the frog swimming happily in the clear water of a pond, and I am also the grass snake who, approaching in silence, feeds itself on the frog. I am the child in Uganda, all skin and bones, my legs as thin as bamboo sticks, and I am the arms merchant selling deadly weapons to Uganda. I am the 12-year-old girl, refugee on a small boat, who throws herself into the ocean after being raped by a sea pirate. And I am the pirate, my heart not yet capable of seeing and loving. I am a member of the Politburo with plenty of power in my hands. And I am the man who has to pay his debt of blood to my people dying slowly in a forced labor camp. My joy is like spring, so warm it makes flowers bloom. My pain is like a river of tears, so full it fills up the four oceans. Please call me by my true names, so I can hear all my cries and my laughs at once so I can see that my joy and pain are but one. Please call me by my true names so I can wake up and so the door of my heart can be left open, the door of compassion. Such a sense of connection and humility and understanding, bringing forth such joy and such care. Mother Teresa was once asked why she did her work with the most desperate poor, and she replied, because I realized I had a Hitler in me. True compassion is humble. True compassion creates no separation between ourselves and others. Now, compassion includes an acceptance of the truth of suffering, but that doesn't mean that it's passive. Thich Nhat Hanh also says, compassion is a verb. Compassion naturally wishes to alleviate suffering in the world. And when our hearts are compassionate, of course, we will try to do what we can to alleviate suffering. It doesn't mean that we just sit and say, oh, I care. Thank you. <laughs> no, it's I care. And what can I do to help? The equanimity part of compassion understands the limits of what we can do. It understands that we can care and do what we can, and then we don't know what the results will be. We can't control the results of our caring and our action. I learned a lot about this at um, 
a community mental health center where I've worked for the last 13 years. And it's in a small town, um, well, medium-sized town that has inner-city problems. Um, there's a lot of poverty and uh, drugs and, and um, gangs and illness and all the kind of, and violence and all the kind of inner-city problems that you would hear about. And I work there as a Spanish-speaking psychotherapist. I speak Spanish, so I work mostly with Puerto Ricans, um, most of them quite poor, and um, with lives that are incredibly difficult. And when I first worked there, I was quite overwhelmed with the suffering. I, um, I just found it so intense. I... Um, It was really hard for a couple of years because I really did care. And um, I was also working within um, a system that included uh, decades of poverty and centuries of imperialism and racism and um, all kinds of uh, larger social issue problems. So it wasn't so easy for change to happen within such a situation. And so I, I would ask myself, you know, how do I work with this? How do I hold this suffering in a way that's skillful? And I learned over time that, that the caring could actually be a protection. That when my heart was strong in caring and strong in equanimity, and when I realized the limits of what I could do, when I realized that it wasn't my job to fix my client's life, it was my job to care, and obviously to offer whatever support I could, but that the caring was most important. Then it got much better. And I also then could open up to seeing more clearly that it wasn't all just pain and suffering, that um, there was also joy in the lives of the people I was working with. But it really took letting go of the sense that I could control the situation or that I had to or could fix everything. And really, um, uh, just letting go of that. And then there's something about care that cuts through isolation and that really um, is so healing for both us and for those that we care about. At least we know that we don't have to be alone in our suffering. That makes such a huge difference. So, I only have a few more minutes. I think I would like to share with you I'd like to share with you a story from the Dalai Lama. It says, last year we dismantled several large poultry farms in the Tibetan settlements in South India out of compassion. It happened like this. 
One day I went to visit a small lake to offer food to the fish that we had previously freed there. There's a practice in um, Tibetan culture of um, uh, buying um, um, fish that are for sale, like live fish for sale, so that they can put them back in the lake and let them go. (laughs) It's a compassion practice. (laughs) On my way back, someone said, by the way, did you see the poultry farm? All of a sudden, I had a vision where I saw large groups of chickens marching along carrying banners on which it was written, the Dalai Lama not only saves fishes, but even feeds them. What does he do for us poor chickens? (laughs) I felt terribly sad and sorry for the chickens. The next day, I discussed the problem with the relevant officials. If, for economic reasons, there are no alternatives, then I have nothing to say. But if there is an alternative, please think seriously about dismantling those chick poultry farms. It seems I agreed, and within a few weeks, about 8,000 chickens were released in our um, settlement, another one in some other settlements. We no longer raise poultry in our settlements. I was deeply moved by my people's response and promised to live for at least another 20 years. I said this under the influence of my emotion. It was not a prediction. (laughs) So in in the Dalai Lama, obviously, most of us know that he's just a a great um, embodiment of compassion. But what's also interesting about this story is there's wisdom in there, too. You know, compassion doesn't mean that we throw out wisdom and throw out um, discernment about what a situation calls for. He said, you know, if if we really need these chicken farms for economic reasons, we'll, we'll, we'll keep them. But if we can do without them, we won't keep them. So sometimes people worry that compassion means that we kind of, um, well, what some people call idiot compassion, that we just kind of, we're compassionate and we don't really, compassionate we don't really think about um, what's the best way to do, to do it. But no, we, we keep our, our wisdom. In fact, our wisdom can be stronger when we're compassionate rather than reactive. It gives us actually more clarity about how to deal with challenging situations, maybe at home, maybe at work. We can respond much uh, with much more clarity if there's compassion for those who are struggling rather than reactivity. I'd like to end with a story by a woman named Lori Anderson called Wild White Horses. In the, oh, um, so she's talking about this time where, there, um, again, the Dalai Lama and some of his monks were in um, New York City. They'd just done one of their mandalas where they make these sand mandalas that take a long time. They're beautiful, and then afterwards they destroy them. Kind of a sign of impermanence. So she says, last fall, the Dalai Lama came to New York City to do a two-week ceremony called the Kala Chakra, which is a prayer to heal the earth. And woven into these prayers were a series of vows that he asked us to take. And before I knew it, I had taken a vow to be kind for the rest of my life. And I walked out of there and I thought, for the rest of my life? What have I done? This is a disaster. (laughs) And I was really worried. Had I promised too much? Not enough? I was really in a panic. 
They had come from Tibet for their ceremony, and they were walking around Midtown in their new brown shoes. And I went up to one of the monks and said, can you come with me to have a cappuccino right now and talk? And so we went to this little Italian place. He had never had coffee before, so he kept talking faster and faster. (laughs) And I kept saying, look, I don't know whether I promised too much or too little. Can you help me, please? And he was being really practical. He said, look, don't limit yourself. Don't be so strict. Open it up, he said. The mind is a wild white horse, and when you make a corral for it, make sure it's not too small. And another thing, when your house burns down, just walk away. And another thing, keep your eyes open. And one more thing, keep moving, because it's a long way home. Let's sit for a couple minutes. mind is a wild white horse, and when you make a corral for it, make sure it's not too small.